Do you suspect or even know if your teenager is using drugs? Do you struggle with figuring out what to do next? Do you feel overwhelmed, scared, or angry? Well, you are not alone. This is the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast, where we explore all the signs of teen drug abuse, reveal science-based impact, and share potential solutions that might just be the next thing you need to try. Here's your host, Ziv Raviv. Hello, and welcome to the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast. Hi, together, we are here again with Amber Hollingsworth, a master addiction counselor. She is also the founder of Hope for Families Recovery Center and the Family Recovery Academy. Online, which is an online institute that helps parents recover addiction of all sorts. She's from Greensville, South Carolina. Hello, Amber. How are you? Hi, I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here and to learn from you. You've been helping a lot of people with addiction, both locally in South Carolina and also uh, like around the world, really. I want to ask you first, like just how did you get into this field? Well, that's a good question. And my answer to that, my I call it my origin story, is not nearly as romantic or wonderful as most people in this field. I come from an addicted family, very addicted. My mother died of methamphetamine use. My grandparents were addicted, like siblings everywhere. But that's not why I got in the field. (laughs) I wish I could say it was, but the truth of it is, is I didn't even realize how addicted my family was until I was already in the field. So I had initially went to school to be a teacher. And then I thought I would be a school counselor. So I went back to get my graduate degree to be a school counselor, but then I couldn't afford to take off a year to do an internship. So at the last minute, I changed my major to community counseling and I got put in a substance abuse internship. And I've been in it ever since then. I just sort of landed there by accident, but there's no place I'd rather be. It's definitely the spot for me. Sometimes when dealing with drug addiction and substance addiction, you see people going through trust that breaks completely and shatters and relationships that that flip and, and deteriorate and people going through terrible hurdles. But there is a lot of hope as well. And sometimes there's a happy ending. Can you share with me an example of a happy ending story of someone, of course, anonymously, like someone that you've been able to help and see their life change? Sure. Well, that's the good part about the work I do is is it's like watching miracles happen, really. And if it weren't for that, I don't think I could be in this field. But getting to see that is it kind of keeps me in the game. One story I can share with you is the story of Campbell, who is also on my team now. She's our parent specialist. And when I met Campbell, her middle son was struggling with addiction. And that nearly destroyed her family. I mean, it was really horrible because even though he was a teenager, he was severely addicted to opioids mainly. And that caused a major crisis in her household. And then as soon as she got that son sort of stabilized and in treatment, she found out that the older son actually had a problem too. So she had to go through this whole process twice. And we worked together. I worked some with her sons and some with her family. And ultimately, both of the sons are doing really well now. 
but it was a long, hard journey. It was a lot of tears, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, as I would call it. But after that, Campbell went back to become a counselor because it it just changed her life and her family so much. And now she works with me and my team. And you can actually hear her whole story on my YouTube channel. She talks about all the details of it, all the all the nitty gritty. Uh, we'll add a link to that in the show notes. So tell me a little bit about the Hopeful Families Recovery Center. What type of, uh, of like who is qualified to actually get you to help them and, and how do you do it? Well, the way Hope for Families came about is because when I was initially a counselor, I call it when I was a baby counselor, I worked in a, a treatment center, like a psychiatric hospital. And it dealt with the most severe issues. We had teenagers, but we also had adults who were maybe in crisis. Maybe they needed detox or they were suicidal or they had some kind of severe psychosis or something. But what I noticed while I worked in that hospital setting, which was for like 10 years, is that although we had treatment for the person, there was hardly anything available to the family. And the families were really in crisis. And the families would call and sometimes they couldn't even find out information about their loved one because their loved one didn't have them. They weren't signed for like a release of information, which is like giving us permission to talk to them. And as a hospital, they would just release them back to their families. You know, they'd be there a week or a couple of weeks and then right back to the families and the families were just drowning with no help. And so that's really where it started to form in my mind about treating whole family systems to keep us out of this like revolving door of the person going back in the hospital and back in the hospital and then sent back out to a family who had no resources, no help, and honestly, no clue what was even going on. And so when I started my private practice, the model was to treat family systems, but also had done the work long enough to realize that if you put the whole family in the room together, that doesn't work so well either. (laughs) Because either no one wants to talk about what's really happening in front of the counselor because they don't want to fight in front of the counselor and then nothing is talked about. And then everyone leaves feeling like, well, that wasn't helpful or families come in and then they do talk about what's going on. And then it turns into like a ginormous fight and then everyone leaves feeling worse. So I developed a treatment team approach. So what happens when people come to our office is the person with the addiction would get a counselor. That would normally be me. And then the family member would also get a counselor If it was a parent, usually they would see Campbell or we have a person that sees spouses and that kind of thing. And then the two counselors work together. We call it lawyering sometimes. So everybody gets an advocate. And that way, each side knows both pieces and what's going on and the two counselors can work together. But it also gives the family members a private space to feel free to talk without worrying they're going to start a fight. They still have confidentiality and that sort of thing. So that's how we came up with this team model of treating family systems in in sort of a unique and different kind of way. And usually you will go into this situation, this formation with uh, teams that agree to be a part of this or do they get like forced into the situation? What's your opinion on that? Most of the time, most of the young people that come to see me are usually sort of talked into it or tricked into it sometimes or drugs kicking and screaming. You know, they don't usually come because they want to. Now, most of the time they're willing to come. They get in the car and they come, but they don't necessarily want to come. But a big part of what we do is, especially these days, is we coach families on if your loved one needs to get help, but they refuse to get help, 
what to do in that situation and how to get them open to receiving help. Because sometimes there's a lot of work to be done before you can even get them in the counselor's office. So when that's needed, we help families figure out how to get their child or loved one to go get help. And then additionally, because one of my first jobs in the hospital was working with teenagers with substance abuse problems, I learned pretty quickly on how to form relationships. So typically, if a family member could get them in to see me, I could win them over pretty quick. So I usually say, get them to agree to come like three times. And if they don't like me about three times, they're just not going to like me. But almost always by that time, they felt connected and we built some trust and then it was easy. But it, it is a little difficult to get that first session or two sometimes. What do you do? What would you tell a family? Like, let's say a parent calls you and they say, we have a problem with drug misuse. We think our kid is addicted. And, but they are not, we talked about it with them and they, we want to take them to a family recovery process or program, but they just are refusing it. What would you recommend them do? One of the things that we tell parents in that specific situation is that normally the kid, the, the young person doesn't think that they have a substance abuse problem. So telling them, I want you to go talk to this person because you have an addiction problem or substance abuse problem, it doesn't do any good because they don't see that as the problem. But what they will see as the problem is they will see that they have a family problem because there's usually been a lot of arguing and chaos and a mess in the family. So if you say to the young person, hey, I know we've been not getting along lately. I know we've had some disagreements about things. And I found this place that helps families sort it out. And so we're all going to go as a family. And so that way, if we're doing something wrong, we can be told we're doing something wrong and we can get our act together too, because we know we're not making all the right decisions either. So the, the way I encourage parents to frame it is through the family lens, instead of telling the young person that you're the problem and you need to get help, to say to the young person, hey, I know as a family, we have a problem and we've not done a good job of listening to you lately and we want to do better at it. Would you be willing to participate in the process, talk to the counselor about what's going on in the family and maybe how we could do better? And usually the young person is a lot more apt to buy into that than they are. You have an addiction and you need to go talk to someone because they do believe they have a family issue. Very interesting. So then they show up. Mm -hmm. And it's the it's usually the parents and the teen, and mm -hmm. you talk with the teen, and they talk with the counselor, and mm -hmm. this lawyering up a counselor team up that uh, like that can communicate with confidentiality, and then they basically do they like is there some sort of a discovery phase where they learn that they also need to recover from their addiction? How do like how do you deal with the the reveal. The first thing I do is I don't even try to attack the addiction yet. I try to build trust and rapport. And I don't do anything until I have this person's trust and rapport. And I do that by hearing their side. I do that by hearing their complaints about their family. And then I go over to the family counselor, like behind the scenes after the session, I say, hey, we need the, the mom or the dad to quit doing this or to start doing this. That's going to help us. And so I advocate for them on their behalf. And so once they realize that I really am on their side, they, they're able to start talking to me more openly and freely. And once that happens, usually, almost always, people, there's something about their substance use that they don't like. And most people on some level realize that maybe I'm doing this too much, or maybe this is causing some problems. And they may not 
be ready to call it an addiction and they may not be ready to say, okay, I'm done with it, but they are able to start exploring the issue with you. And when you can get a person to sort of openly explore it with you without sort of jumping, you know, without saying, you know, that's an addiction and you got to stop, then you help them to think through it. There's some different counseling techniques I use. One of them is called like motivational interviewing, which is a set of counseling techniques specifically designed for dealing with someone who maybe is in in denial or in like the early stages of change that helps to find their motivation and bring it forward. Like, for example, maybe the kid starts talking to me about how their girlfriend broke up with them because the girlfriend says, all you want to do is hang out with your pot smoking friends. That's an in. Now, that's not the person telling me I'm addicted to pot. That's the person telling me my girlfriend is mad at me. So we take that avenue. We go from that starting point and we explore it from there. And I say, well, you know, what does she want you to do? Well, she wants me to spend less time, you know, with my friends and you smoke less pot. And I'll say, well, let's try that. And so I go through this process with them where I allow them to try these different things. I call it like this trial and error process or bargaining where they try different things to sort of cut it back or fix certain problems associated with it. And this allows them to figure this whole thing out faster. But you do have to let them go through this process of trial and error. There's no skipping it, but you can speed it up. And that's what I do. So one of the problems that many parents has is they have uh, the problem is like identifying that they have an, an issue. They might be suspecting that the kids are misusing drugs or alcohol, but uh, usually like we were talking mainly about drugs, but they are not sure and they're worried. And uh, actually, you're quite an expert in identifying if there's actually a problem. Can you talk a little bit about what parents should pay attention to? That's a really good question because a lot of kids will experiment with drugs and alcohol. And while I never think that that's a good idea, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is addicted to drugs and alcohol or having a major problem with drugs and alcohol. And to be honest, most of the time, I would say 90% of the time, by the time parents are like watching my YouTube videos or they're calling me, they already know it's a problem because it's been going on a while. It's not like the first time they caught their kid doing something. It's It's been going on. But I would say the major indicators would be you're going to see a shift in mood. A person is usually going to become progressively more depressed and more anxious. You're going to see a shift in friends. Sometimes you'll see two shifts. You'll see it, the first shift will be from like my my lifelong friends that I've had since kindergarten or, you know, from the neighborhood to like maybe the kids who are cooler and party. And then if it goes on long enough, you'll see them shift from the cool kids into the drug kids. These are the kids that like literally that's all they do. It's not like they're the athletes that maybe have a few drinks on the weekend. We're talking about like this is what they do. This is what they're known for. And you'll see them shift again. You'll also see that some of their older friends will sort of fall off, quit talking to them. Some of them might even get upset with them and and outright sort of cut them off. You'll usually see a shift in grades. If, you know, if they're in school, you'll see a downshift. And one of the biggest symptoms that I look for that doesn't seem to be directly related, but is, is almost always an indicator is I, and this is for adults or young people, I measure how much unreasonable self-pity and resentment someone has. Because when people are really addicted, their viewpoint on their life is very skewed. 
and they're full of self-pity and resentment. And that self-pity and resentment is how they justify continuing to make more bad choices. So I feel sorry for myself. You know, my mom's ridiculous. My teachers aren't fair. My dad's a workaholic. I mean, every teen has some of that, right? But I'm talking about like excessive and unreasonable. And I can tell by that kind of thinking how far someone is. So what would be an unreasonable amount of self-pity and resentment that you would identify as, as a sign? The amount that's allowing the person to make bad choice after bad choice. You know, when I feel when I am so mad at my teachers or my mom or my dad or my sister or whatever it is that I'm ruining my own life over it, then I know we're in an extreme. And then also just when you listen to, you know, especially a young person complain about something about their parents, you can just tell by the way they talk to you about it, how extreme it is. You know, most most teenagers are going to complain that their parents are too uptight or too this. And I would expect that. I mean, that's normal. But you can just see that there's this seething anger and this rebellion and this, I can't stand them. I just want to move out of the house. It's just extreme. I want to talk about the aftermath of your work with the family. Okay. Uh, you've helped them. They went through the process, the family recovery process, but then they go back in a way to living in maybe the same neighborhood, maybe the same school, maybe the same friends to some degree. And for the parents, it can be very scary because what will change really? What are some of the tips and tools that you empower parents with when you know that you are close to the end of a process of a program? Well, I think it's particularly hard with teenagers because they're usually still in school. They're still in high school. And If someone is really addicted, in my experience, high school and addiction do not mix and high school and recovery do not mix. And that's not me saying every kid in school uses substances. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is every kid in their school knows that they use substances. And so they have like a reputation for it. Other kids expect certain things out of them. And so even when they're trying really hard to change, it's going to be extremely difficult for them to change in their same old environment. So when possible, once the person is, the teenager is really trying to change, I suggest trying to change some of the environment. I don't suggest doing that before they're trying to change because sometimes parents will do that. They'll say, let's just take you out of this school and put you in private school or something like that. And that's not a good idea if the person isn't trying yet. If they don't see that they have any issue and they're not trying to change because all that's going to happen is they're actually going to feel more alone and more isolated and more desperate to make friends. And it's really going to escalate the problem. However, if the young person is trying to make a change and they're actively working on it and they're open to changing schools or, or maybe even, I mean, in a lot of situations, I'll suggest that in the United States, you can get like your, your GED, which is like your high school equivalent diploma and just be done with it, like test out or move on in some way. Because I don't think keeping a kid in the same environment that's trying to change, I just don't think it works. We can work with the family system to make the family system and the home change, but there's nothing we can do about the high school. So if once the kid gets open to it, we suggest changing the environment when possible. That's not always possible, but... What would you say to a parent that, is, that went through the recovery, the family recovery, and maybe even they changed the environment, but the, the teen is still insisting on being friends with in some sort of relationship, basically, with some of the people that were using before. So 
they say, we're done. We're done with the drugs. We're, we're recovered. But they still hang out or want to hang out with them. What, what would you recommend in a situation like that? That's part of what I was talking to you about before the bargaining process. It's one of the bargains that people go through. So it's like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to smoke weed anymore. I'm not going to drink or whatever it is that they've been doing. But I'm still going to hang out with my friends. I'm just going to tell them not to use in front of me. That's a very typical thing that they might say. That won't work. <laughs> but you have to let them go through that process. And what we tell parents about it is you can't control this problem externally, meaning you can't run off every friend. You can't run off every girlfriend or boyfriend or person that's bringing this around your kid. You can only control this problem internally. This is an internal issue inside the kid. And so parents get really fixated on blocking them from seeing these using friends as bad influences. But what I like to do is I like to let the person figure that out. I'll say, okay, let's try that. I'll usually tell them, I'll say to the kid, I'll say, you know, in my experience, it's like harder than you think because either your friends come around you and they don't use, but to be honest, they really want to be using. So they start coming around less and then that's kind of hurtful. Or they come around you and they don't use, but it just reminds you that they are using and you know that what they're doing when they're away and that's kind of a trigger. And so that's bothersome. Or they come around you and they do use in front of you and either you end up using with them, which you didn't want to do, or you don't. And it's not fun hanging out with them anyway. So if you let the teenager go through this process of figuring out that that won't work anymore, the friend thing will settle itself much faster than if you just try to keep them from seeing their friends. Because as long as you're trying to keep them from seeing their friends, they're going to continue to defend their friends. You can get rid of the drugs faster than you can get rid of the friends. They're going to be loyal to their friends. And trying to run the friends off is going to drag it out longer. And so what I do is I, I go through the, the process with the young person to figure that out. But that's also why the family is also seeing the family counselor, because the family counselor is also helping the family understand that they can't control it this way. And they're saying, this is what Amber's doing over there. And this is why we're doing it. And you got to hang tight. So you can hold the, the young person responsible for whatever, you know, if you're saying we're holding you responsible to pass your drug screens to be able to drive, per se, that is your boundary as the parent. That is your side of the street. That's the line you're holding in the sand. It is your kid's job to figure out how to meet that expectation, not yours. So to say, I expect you to pass your drug test, but you can't hang out with this person or go here or go there. That's where the parent is crossing over into the kid's lane. And that's where the kid is going to start fighting you. They're going to fight you harder on the friends than they are on the drug use. They're going to tell themselves that they can not use the drugs, but be around the friends. But they will figure out that that doesn't work. It just doesn't mesh. Either they keep using and they figure out that that doesn't work. Or they figure out, well, I just don't have that much in common with these people anymore. Or these people really aren't my friend as much as I thought they were. One way or the other, they figure that out. You just, but you do have to give them the space to do that. Speaking of drug tests, which is a huge topic by itself, do you work with drug tests? How often do you recommend it for parents? What's your take on that? If the person is a teenager, then I think it can be a good idea. But I think how you do it is very important. We recommend that if parents are going to drug test it, they tell the person up front that that's what they're going to do and that they have a regular routine for it, as opposed to maybe your kid comes home and they seem really messed up. And then you say, let's have, you're taking a drug test. You were late for curfew or something, because that's just going to start an argument. What you, if you're going to drug test, you want to use it as a preventative, not as a, I'm trying to catch you. 
And so if someone knows that they're going to be tested every so many days or something like that, then what happens is, is you're trying to get them to not use in a high-risk situation as opposed to catching them using after a situation. So it's really important, I think, that you set it up the correct way. And it's also really important as a parent to know how to respond when they say, I'm not taking it or that test is wrong. I didn't do that. And I actually have all of that laid out. I, a while, several years ago, I made this thing called Home Drug Screening Guide for Parents, which I'll send you the link and you can put in the show notes if you want. And people can download that for free. And it, it tells you how to get them really cheap and how to go about doing it and when to do it and what to say and all the little junk that they're going to throw at you to try to like throw you off. It tells you how to respond to it because I've heard all the things. <laughs> and and I'm going to help because my goal, like with YouTube, is I want you to be five steps ahead of it. You have to stop reacting to what's going on today and you have to think what's going to happen next week and next month. And that's where you need to get. You need to get ahead of it instead of this fighting and putting out fires thing that you have happening on a daily basis. Now we're going to get ahead of it. So the home drug screening guide is part of that and it can help you figure out a plan for implementing that in a way that's not going to start a fight or an argument or anything like that, because that's not helpful. Amber Hollingsworth, this has been so valuable to to just uh, brainstorm and, and like just go through some of the topics that are troubling parents of teens that are abusing drugs and are misusing it and, and maybe even addicted to it. Where can people go to learn more about what you do online and locally? The best place I think to find me is on YouTube. My YouTube channel is called Put the Shovel Down, which I know might sound really strange, but it's a recovery saying. It means you hit your bottom and you put your shovel down because we try to help people get better before they lose everything, before they hit bottom. We want them to walk forward before everything gets terrible. That's where the name comes from. So it's put the shovel down. And there are hundreds of videos on there, the majority of which are geared towards families to know how to deal with these very difficult situations. Wonderful. We'll put the links on the show notes to all of your website and the YouTube channel. Amber, this has been really valuable. Thank you for all that you do and for sharing this wisdom with us. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. listening to the teen drug abuse podcast to get additional resources and support go to teendrugabuse.co